As we shift gears from Romans to 1 Peter, would you stand with me as we read God's Word, as we begin at the beginning, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in, the, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that, they, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word for which we are thankful. As we gather around it now, would you teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that has brought the gospel to us, As we've just read about, I pray that we would see Christ clearly, high and lifted up, that our faith might be encouraged, that our lives might be challenged, and some might be saved this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to all of you dads and granddads, great-granddads, soon-to-be dads. I hope you have a restful day. Um, I must say thank you to all of you who have supported, uh, who have attended, who have served, who have prayed for the South Campus. Uh, it's been a great first year. We're about three months past our, our one-year anniversary. Three months, is that right? Yeah. About three months past. Um, and we're looking forward to the summer, heading into the fall for what God might do um, through us at, as College Church Uh, at the South Campus with Gospel Proclamation, and we're excited. So thank you. Hopefully you'll have a chance to attend sometime this summer. It'll be a great chance to do that. We as a pastoral staff are excited to begin this series through 1 Peter with you. Many of you will have already done uh, quite a bit of study in 1 Peter as it was the focus of our small groups uh, over this past year. But our hope is that this look at 1 Peter in this context would reinforce what you've already been experiencing and learning and living out in the context of your small groups. So that's our hope. Uh, We'll cover some very weighty theological doctrines as well as some intensely practical application of those doctrines. So we'll move kind of back and forth from a 30,000 foot view of God's sovereignty, which we'll look at a little bit today, which is one of the major themes of this book. Um, we'll, We'll look at 
what God has done for us in Christ on the cross with a high view of Jesus, as Peter is going to present to us uh, Jesus as our Savior, not just the object of our faith, but the pattern for living out our faith. And that will bring us down to the kind of the street view, the living room view, if you will, of what he's called us to and what he is calling us to do and to be as a church, as a people in the face of suffering and cultural hostility. But in order to live out these truths, we must first have right belief and right understanding. Right understanding and right belief sets you on a path to right living. It's only logical. And the type of living described here in 1 Peter isn't, isn't just about action. So many times as Christians, we want the refrigerator magnet with points one, two, and three of how to have a good Christian life today. But, first, but Peter, the action that he's calling us to is in, in many ways more about posture and identity than it is about just what we do. How should you and I posture ourselves and submit within a society filled with human institutions, even with those with which we disagree or may one day even seek our harm? How does a God-centered marriage work? What should be the posture of a husband towards a wife and a wife towards her husband in a culture of marriage confusion? How should we as a church and your church leaders, your church elders, how should we all love and seek unity in a hostile environment against an enemy who in chapter 5 is described as a roaring lion that wants to devour us? How do we do that? Persecution and suffering is another major theme and is the backdrop for this letter. Persecution and suffering can leave us grasping for a lifeline or some kind of escape rope. And that's what the people in Peter's day were experiencing. Peter himself, even. But God hasn't given us a rope by simply which to grasp for escape. Rather, he's given us a rock. Or as in chapter 2, Jesus is described as the cornerstone of our faith on which to stand. And a risen Savior in whom we are to hope and to believe. Chapter 4, verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the message of 1 Peter. But many times we get that backwards. We simply want to know what we have to do to make the suffering stop as quickly as possible, as painlessly as possible, and we'll worry about belief and understanding and faith later. But Peter's pattern in this letter much like Paul's pattern in several of his letters, is to set our mind's attention and our heart's affection squarely on Jesus and the gospel before he sets our hands and feet to action. The biblical pattern isn't to escape persecution and suffering or to make it stop, but rather to live in the love and the light of Jesus, though now for a little while, if necessary, in the midst of pain and persecution, even as an exile or a foreigner in your own land, because there is something better on the horizon of eternity. Peter begins, as most epistles do, by addressing the specific audience to whom he's writing. He immediately identifies his audience as those elect exiles of the dispersion. It sounds like an oxymoron. Those who have been scattered abroad, who are both chosen and accepted by a holy and redeeming God, and yet are foreigners and sojourners and aliens who have been marginalized and rejected by their own culture. 
those who are seeking to live rightly and faithfully and even bless the culture that they're in, a culture that they've been saved out of but still remain within. Does that sound familiar to you? Perhaps you can relate in your own family or in your workplace or in your neighborhood. Yet they've been called out according to, as verse 2 shows us, the sovereign foreknowledge and purpose of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. This is a very Old Testament image of Israel being called out, being set aside as God's people, called out, sprinkled with sacrificial blood as sojourners. But we have, in addition to that, a Trinitarian description of those called out in the New Covenant. This is a description of their conversion, of your conversion if you're in Christ. It's their past, present, and future. It's our past, present, and future. It's God's power, plan, and purpose for all of us. And yet, they, we, have been called to be exiles, to be foreigners in their own land. That leaves us asking, what kind of God saves his own people in order to lead them to the margins? Are they doing something wrong? Have they failed at something? Has God abandoned them? It's a question we all find ourselves asking from time to time. Peter, in his wisdom, though, and from his own personal experience, knows what it is to be someone who was once a rejecter of Jesus and then to receive the forgiveness and grace. And it's the same forgiveness and grace that he is now saying, be multiplied to you, his audience. He received the sanctification of the Spirit, the same one that we've received, and now is passing on that grace and peace to his readers. Why? The big why of this book. So that they might understand, and so that we might understand, that what we've been elected to What we've been chosen for, that is salvation, is far better than what we have ever been or ever will be exiled from. But do you believe that? That what you've been elected to, what you call your own faith, is better than, is greater than what you might be exiled from in your family, your career, your own social standing in your neighborhood. Peter knows that if he starts by giving us just some principles by which to build our lives on, rather than first setting a high view of God and a, and a high view of salvation in Christ, if he, if he just gives us a couple of principles to live by, and the, when persecution comes, it will be crushing. It will be crushing because there's no foundation. And so it is with us. So instead of asking what kind of God leads his people to exile and rejection, Peter flips the question on its head because his life had been flipped and turned upside down and asks, what kind of God is this instead of who exiles but who redeems from exile, from spiritual exile, from spiritual and eternal rejection and brings a people home? Peter gives us a view of who we are, our identity in Christ, our living hope. And then he also gives us a view of what is to come at the final revelation of Jesus. And that enables the Christian, you and I, to rejoice even in grief 
from various trials. And he does that in three distinct movements from, chapter, from verse 3 to verse 12. So he calls us to praise and rejoicing that transcends suffering. First, he calls us to rejoice in this way in God's merciful plan in verse, verses 3 through 5. He doesn't waste any time. He jumps right in with a declaration of praise and rejoicing to these elect exiles. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we rejoice in this way? Because according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've already said this together as a congregation this morning. This is the gospel. This is the truth that the Christian believes. This is the basis for all of our preaching. This is the basis for my preaching this morning. Christ died for sinners and rose from the tomb. It's a key verse in this letter, and it's where we get the title for the series, A Living Hope. And it's the main identifier of who we are as elect people of God. Let's remember what I said at the beginning about Peter's pattern for this book is to show us what we've been elected to, what we've been chosen for is better than what we've been exiled from or being exiled from. And to do that, he kind of starts by pulling back the curtain a little bit and show us who is doing the choosing. This is God. This is God in Christ choosing you for something better, for something eternally and infinitely better. Don't you see? You can hear Peter saying this. This is God who has saved you, and this is how he has done it. This is his son. He has caused you and I, if you are in Christ, to be made alive, brought back from the dead, just like Jesus was brought back from the dead. This coming from Peter, who at moments in his life had lost hope, even to the point of denying his own Savior. And yet when Christ rose from the grave, he regained hope. And he was given faith. Everything around us is in decay. It's dead. It's dying. I know that's great what you wanted to hear this morning. But not Jesus. He's not a dead myth or an empty promise. He's a living hope because of the empty tomb. And that means our hope doesn't rise and fall on the shifting tides of a, of a culture. Our hope isn't based on a circumstantial how or what or where or why. It's based on who. And we see that in verse 3. It's based on this great God who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Not to, not to or buy something that's intrinsically good in us, in you or me. God didn't look down in some worrisome way and just and wonder, what am I going to do? Who is there out there that can just be full of gospel greatness in the midst of this hell-bent culture? What am I going to do? That is not our God. It was by his mercy and by his plan that he gave us new life according to his own goodness. And so that gives us the hope to get, the eyes, get our eyes off of the many ways that our culture may reject us, that you may experience rejection for following Christ, and get your eyes on the Savior who was rejected so that you could be chosen. He was dead and raised to life so that you might have a living hope now and for eternity because there's more. There's more. This isn't 
just temporal. It's eternally more. By God's mercy, he caused you to be born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection to an inheritance. This inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Hope is a universal longing, right? Kids hope for Christmas. Students and teachers hope for summer break, which is here. Even though I met a teacher the other day who was actually sad about that. That was good. Dads hope for a rest or a nap this afternoon. And hopefully some meat cooked over fire, right? (laughs) You know what I'm saying. But hope is also something that Dostoevsky said that if we live without it, we cease to live. So what happens when the object of our hope ceases to actually provide the hope that we're looking for? We put our hopes in many things, our jobs, our bank accounts, our retirement, our health, sports, elections, politics, our own abilities to get things done, the ability of others to do the same or even more, our families, But we know that all of those things are fragile, and if those are our final sources of hope, we will be left with uncertainty, and that's what drives us to anxiety and worry many times. Because each of those things, or whatever you would fill in that blank with, contains something that is perishable, that we know is defiled and in some ways impure, and something that will fade away. Even the good things, even the best things that this life has to offer fall into those categories. So what is this inheritance? Well, it's a heavenly kingdom, an inheritance that is not destroyed by moth or rust. As Jesus said, it's not stolen by thieves. It is incorruptible. And it's where Jesus said our hearts should be because that's where our treasure is. And it's kept for heaven, kept for us in heaven. It's an eternal certainty that is awaiting us. We must resist the temptation of the prodigal son thinking that our inheritance is something that we gain now. And if we follow down his path, we know that squandering that inheritance, thinking it's something in the temporal, will leave us wanting. Our inheritance is something eternal. God's merciful merciful plan is to give us an indestructible living hope in Jesus in the midst of all that fades. Verse 5 shows us that God's desire for us is to set our eyes to what we've been chosen for. An election unto salvation that is being guarded, safeguarded through faith and kept safe by resurrection power, by God's power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead guarantees your eternal safety, your your, your eternal guarding, ready to be revealed at the last time. What you've been called to and chosen for is eternally grateful, greater than what you are being or ever would be exiled from. So rejoice in God's merciful plan. Second, we rejoice in God's eternal purpose. Verses six through nine, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter now calls us to a rejoicing that is indicative of the response to this living hope that we have in Christ. A high view of Jesus 
even in the midst of trials. Trials? Yes, trials. Trials of various kinds. But wait, didn't Peter just say that we are being safeguarded? How does, how does that work? What does this mean? Why do I have trials if, if God is keeping me safe? Because they feel so unsafe. Well, let's first define what Peter means by trials. Specifically in the context of this letter, we know by the time of when this is written, the audience to whom it was written, and the content of the instruction within the letter, that these various trials primarily concern the persecution of those who are following Christ. This isn't necessarily the type of suffering that, comes, uh, that is common to all humanity, natural disasters, even illness, particular sinfulness done to you or done by you, societal sinfulness. These are trials particular to followers of Christ for being a follower of Christ. And it's likely uh, that we may experience something like that, that you may be experiencing something like that. It is, a, it is a certainty that our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing something like that this very day. That's why we pray for our missionaries all the time. Some of you may lose your jobs or your business or your career because of your faith. You may be denied a job because of your faith. Some of you may be denied the adoption of a child because of your faith. You may not be allowed to attend a school that you'd like to attend. You may be right now ostracized or estranged from family members or neighbors because of your faith. Churches, like we saw last week in Charleston, may experience violence in the midst of practicing their faith. And let me say that we should be lifting up, as John did this morning, our brothers and sisters in Charleston. They have exhibited unbelievable Christ-likeness and forgiveness. Were it to ever occur here, would we respond in the same way? May God grant it to be so. But we should be praying for them nonetheless. But here's something we must learn. Hardship, difficulty, pain, and grief in various earthly trials do, does not negate God's heavenly security for you and eternal safety. Nor does eternal safety and pr protection equate to earthly comfort and ease. We are not guaranteed that. Many times when something gets difficult, we ask, what am I doing wrong? Isn't there some sort of spiritual life hack that I can apply here that I read on the internet to just get me through today? But God has an eternal purpose for us in the midst of various trials, and we are to find deep joy in that. And that is something many times that we have to fight for. Not because the trial is good, it's certainly not, but because in spite of the trial, God is still good and faithful, and he is purposeful in all of his actions and in all things. He has given us a faith that is being tested and made more and more genuine day by day, wound by wound, tear by tear, prayer by prayer, step of faith by step of faith. Even when tested like fire, by fire, like the refining of gold. 
But Peter tells us that your genuine faith is actually even more precious than gold because gold in and of itself, as precious as it, as it is, will perish one day, but your faith will last through the glorious eternal. Look with me at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, uh, Jesus says in verse 31, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with them, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. As a part of your inheritance, there is a glory to be shared when the king returns or calls you home. He will say, come and inherit this kingdom filled with glory and honor, which is the result of a tested, genuine faith. And it's all through Jesus. Trials will expose us. They will show our weakness. But they also show purpose. And they test us for a purpose. This passage calls us to rejoice in an eternal living hope and that though we may experience trials, they are not outside the sovereign love and care of your heavenly Father. They are not purposeless or meaningless and they lead to love, belief, salvation, and a genuine faith. We see that in verse eight. But how will you know what you love if you are not tested. Puritan Richard Sibbs says it like this. Once he was asked how a person could know whether he really loved the world or loved God, he answered, that will be seen by observing the bent of our heart, how it is swayed towards God and his service, and how towards things below. When two masters are parted, their servants will be known by whom they serve, by following their own master. Blessed be God, in these times we enjoy both religion and the world together, much like our day. But if times of suffering should approach, then it would be known whose servants we are. Consider, therefore, beforehand what you would do. Mark Dever comments on this by saying, In the end, our love indicates our God. Whatever we love the most, whatever we trust the most, whatever we fear the most, whatever we joy and delight ourselves in the most, whatever we obey the most, that is our God. Because our, but because our God, this great God who has saved us, is so different from the gods of this world, we are persecuted. Question for you this morning, is your God different from the gods of this world? Is the God that you hope in Different, or is it some blend of, or is it this kind of God that we're reading about this morning in First Peter? We see that the eternal purpose here is genuine faith, and the true faith that passes the test is the one that has a love for Jesus and a mind for belief in Him, with both which both enables joy in trials and an eternal perspective in the midst of all that is temporal. I do a fair amount of meeting with people who are in the midst of trouble. It's part of the role of being a pastor. 
Some of it is self-inflicted and it comes from within. Some of it is hardships and oppression from without. And we see it every week when you fill out the prayer request cards and turn those in that we, we pray for every week. And it's our joy to do that for you and with you. But we see the, the trials and the brokenness all the time. And I, and I find that the people who can get their feet back under them the, the, the fastest, the, the most quickly, and I've seen this in my own life from time to time, are the people with an exalted view of Jesus in the midst of suffering. That doesn't mean that the trial or the suffering goes away. It's not a magic pill or a silver bullet to take care of that. But in the midst of grief caused by various trials, a love focused on Jesus, a belief set on him, even though he is unseen, even though you do not now see him, will result in a joy that is inexpressible, unexplainable, and filled with glory. Because love drives hope, doesn't it? And in this case, drives us to our living hope, Jesus, which drives us to take another breath, to take another step, to put one foot in front of the other, and to stand. So when people come to see me in the midst of difficulty or, or talk to you about the difficulties that they're having, why should you talk about Jesus? This is why. Setting our love and belief on Jesus is intensely practical because it obtains and secures the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So when we pray for you, when you pray for one another, when we pray for each other, when you pray for us, we certainly pray for healing, for mended relationships, for safety, for wisdom. We pray for the salvation of the lost. But we also pray and primarily pray for an exalted view of Jesus in all things in the body of believers here at College Church, for you in your homes, and pray that God would make it so in this community because it achieves God's eternal purpose. That brings us to our final section, verses 10 through 12. So we've rejoiced in God's eternal purpose. Now let's think about God's faithfulness and rejoice in the Savior's gospel faithfulness. Verses 10 through 12. This final section could be easily written off as just a simple proof text of the reliability of the gospel throughout the ages. And it's at least that, but it is so much more because in the midst of doubt, you want a God with a traceable history of faithfulness. Not a whimsical God, but a faithful God who is faithful not just in your own life, but in the faith, in, who is faithful throughout the history of the world. And God's faithfulness, if you are like me a little bit, you, you know that when trials come, God's faithfulness and the remembrance of that faithfulness is one of the first things we forget, which is why uh, in the Old Testament, the, the prophets, the Old Testament writers, the leaders of the, in in the nation of Israel are always telling Israel, remember, rem remember, remember. If you ever study the Old Testament, take time to highlight every time that someone is instructed to remember. It's quite often. In the New Testament, we're told to be thankful. And thankfulness demands our remembrance of what God has done. And so here in verses 10 through 12, concerning this salvation that we've been given... Peter outlines 
the movement of the gospel and God's faithfulness by the work of the Spirit of Christ throughout history. God's, God has always been at work. He is at work, and he will be at work to accomplish his purposes for salvation, even in the mystery of suffering. And even the prophets had, had a gospel purpose in what they were doing. They didn't fully know it, but they were being faithful with the knowledge and the task that God had given them. They couldn't have fully known what their careful inquiry, as the scripture says, and prophetic truth would bear concerning the cross of Christ and the spread of the gospel. But that's why in verse 12 it says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. It was a mystery to them. When Jesus came, it was a mystery to those around him. And it's what Paul calls over and over and over again in his letters, a mystery, the mystery of the gospel. And perhaps you would consider this morning the path that the gospel took to land on your ears. Certainly you can trace it back a little bit, but at one point it will become a mystery how God chose you and orchestrated circumstances for you to hear the gospel and believe. It's a mystery. And as we consider that path, some of you may be hearing the gospel for the first time this morning. May God grant you faith to believe. That's why when we read that God has purposes in our sufferings that they might be necessary, even for a little while, we're left sometimes in mystery and confusion. But we should let that mystery reside in the trial itself and not in the faithful God of salvation. For he may work mysteriously, but he is not a mystery. And in this we rejoice in God's faithfulness to his gospel for our good. And finally, the ultimate example of that is shown in Christ. Verse 11, the Spirit of Christ used the prophets to predict the sufferings of Christ, but also the subsequent glories. What does that mean? It means that we're not ever asked to endure anything that Jesus didn't first himself endure, even in mystery. It's what drives Tim Keller to rightly say, God is accomplishing salvation, not in spite of suffering, not in spite of agony or loss, but through it. It is through the suffering of God himself in Christ that the suffering of humankind will eventually be overcome and undone. Amen. God's plan throughout all of history was to exile Jesus even through suffering, so that in our exile we might be redeemed. And in our suffering, we might rejoice in the light of our subsequent glories that are yet to come in Christ for eternity because of God's faithfulness. These are things into which angels long to look. As we study First Peter, we must keep this at the forefront of our minds. And yes, there will be things to do, and people to become, but there is one Christ in whom we rejoice, even in suffering, for God is faithful. It's my prayer that he quicken this truth to our hearts for his glory and for our good. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would use your word effectively in each of our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit to change us more into Christ-likeness 
even in the midst of suffering, perhaps even for some in the midst of unbelief, would you meet us where we are this morning through your word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.